Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The National Counterintelligence and Security Center, our role is to lead and support the counterintelligence and security community to really integrate those functions. But we're also here to do outreach to the private sector and to the public to educate them on counterintelligence threats and to do public warnings. The ODNI recently released their annual threat assessment, uh, which poses a, a picture of Russia and China being the global threats against us, who are by far the most capable uh, counterintelligence adversaries we have, but also Iran and North Korea are these regional threats with sophistication in cyber operations against our interests. When most people think of intelligence operations, they think of cloak and dagger and covert operations. Can you talk a little bit then about the non-traditional piece, which seems to be growing in importance. We were originally concerned with intelligence officers who worked at embassies and embassy cover. And now we've seen a pivot to these non-traditional collectors, which are students, researchers, uh, business people, people who have legitimate jobs who act as proxies or surrogates for the intelligence service. We have seen the Chinese and Russians recruit people inside of companies to either facilitate cyber operations or steal information, or in addition, Chinese have a number of talent acquisition programs where they're trying to recruit talent, but also encouraging them to take technology with them or intellectual property when they recruit those individuals. If you were looking out five to 10 years, is this problem going to be worse? Or is this problem going to be better? What do you think? If we don't take action, it is going to be worse. And I think the next five years are very critical for us to engage as a whole of society to figure out how are we going to counter the efforts of China if we want to be the national leaders. 
Michael Orlando is the acting director of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Mike has more than 25 years of experience in the military, the intelligence community, and in law enforcement. Before joining the NCSC, Mike served in a number of roles in the FBI's counterterrorism division. Earlier in his career, he worked on counterintelligence projects with multiple deployments to China. Mike and I just sat down to talk about the center that he runs and the intelligence threat posed by our adversaries. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Mike, thanks for joining us on Intelligence Matters. I'm really looking forward to the discussion with you. Thank you for having me. Uh, a lot of my colleagues are big fans of this program, so it's certainly an honor to be here with you. Mike, before we dig into the threat landscape that you deal with every day, I'd like to ask a couple questions about you, if that's okay. And the first is, how did you end up at the FBI? What attracted you there? And what's your career been like? I, I've always wanted to work uh, national security. Uh, and, you know, I started off in the military and then had pivoted over to CIA before coming over to the FBI. Uh, I, I've, I've always been attracted to the domestic uh, counterintelligence uh, mission. Uh, and I've had a, a great career over here, uh, working everything from China, espionage, Iran, Russia, counterintelligence, and then a tour over at counterterrorism. And so it's been really great working in this industry. And for the listeners, if you're really into team sports, uh, working in the national security, FBI, CIA, the intelligence community is to me the ultimate team sport where you're doing something of national importance. There's real meaning to going to work every day, I found. Absolutely. So you've worked a lot of counterintelligence cases. Let me ask you about at least one of them. You worked on the Maria Butina case, the Russian agent who sought to infiltrate the NRA and some conservative circles. In fact, I think you led the team. And I just wanted to ask you how unique was that case in the universe of Russian CI cases, particularly in how openly she operated, which seemed to me to be a little unusual. Yeah, it's certainly a unique case for a couple of reasons. Um, first, you know, she was arrested for uh, an unregistered agent. That is a very difficult charge to bring. And the investigative team uh, certainly did a great job of building that case and working with the U.S. Attorney's Office to be able to show the evidence uh, of what she was doing. Uh, and for the listeners, you know, she was essentially, uh, you know, here trying to infiltrate uh, political circles uh, for the benefit of the Russian government to collect information and to influence to the advantage uh, for the, the Russian government. And I think this case highlights, I think, the current challenges in counterintelligence where back in the Cold War, we were focused on intelligence officers working undercover out of the embassy. Uh, she played a role as what we call a non-traditional collector, uh, not an officially trained intelligence officer, but certainly working as a proxy for the government. She says, right, that she was 
involved in normal diplomacy, right? Not an intelligence operation. And, and just wondering for our listeners, you know, where's the line between those two things? The line is when you're not disclosing that you're supporting or working for a government. And in her case, she was not disclosing uh, that she was working on the behalf of the government. So Mike, let's switch to the center you run. We had Bill Evanina on the show before, but it's been a while. So could you remind us what the center does, what its mission is? Sure. Uh, The National Counterintelligence and Security Center, uh, our role is to lead and support the counterintelligence and security community to really integrate uh, those functions. Uh, But we're also here to do uh, outreach uh, to the private sector and to the public to educate them on counterintelligence threats and to do public warnings to advise them of threats such as election threats, or other national things that we think they need to have awareness of. And what, Mike, what are your priorities for both the center and for the broader U.S. counterintelligence community? What do you want to accomplish? Sure. So the priorities that I have is in aligning with the integration of the community. We have a number of challenges from China to Russia to Iran and North Korea. And these challenges require us as an intelligence community to work together. And my priority is to make sure that we are integrating the community in the ways that they need to be integrated on the most important topics that require a whole of government effort. And then the other thing that is a priority for me is the public outreach that we do is so important because this is a whole of society problem. And we really need to educate the public of the counterintelligence threats and how it impacts them so they can better protect themselves. So I am looking to make sure that we continue to build our outreach capabilities so we can deliver the best message to educate the public. And can you give us examples of the kind of outreach you're talking about? Sure. We do a lot of different outreach. To start with, we have the ability to bring in uh, at-risk sectors uh, and do a a one-time read-in for classified information where we can provide them classified information so they understand the threat. And oftentimes we do that in partnership with other agencies Uh, such as the FBI, so that they can bring a level of expertise or we can help build partnerships. We also do a number of unclassified briefings uh, using uh, business associations so we can get our message out about the different threats. And then third, we do a number of public-private partnerships with DHS on things from cyber to energy to help those private-public partnerships where we can bring some expertise to them. If there's a a, a specific... very specific threat or specific case, would that be the FBI that would approach the company um, as opposed to you guys? How does that work? Yeah. So we're, we're not an investigative or operational entity. And so the FBI, if there's a specific threat, uh, it certainly would be the FBI. We do more general education uh, and then pass off those relationships or partner with the FBI for those specific things. So I'm wondering about the general public, right? I don't think they have an understanding of, in general, the threat posed by China and the the counterintelligence threat in particular. So are you thinking about ways of of getting to the, the general public as opposed to specific sectors or specific companies? Yes. Uh, not only are we trying to think of ways to get better outreach to a broader audience, we're also trying to make sure we're talking about things at most at risk. So for example, we are very concerned about China's theft of what we call transformative technologies. Uh, that would be artificial intelligence, quantum computing, autonomous vehicles, biotechnology, uh, 5G. 
And so we want to make sure that those industries have the awareness about the risk to them so that we don't lose uh, our leadership in that those fields, which we believe are very important for our economic and national security. And then we're also trying to look for various platforms where we can widen the audience. So Mike, let's talk about the counterintelligence threat landscape. What does it look like? Who are the key adversaries? Can you kind of paint that picture for us? Sure. Uh, the ODNI recently released their annual threat assessment, uh, which poses a, a picture of Russia and China being the global threats against us, who are by far the most capable uh, counterintelligence adversaries we have. But also Iran and North Korea are these regional threats with uh, sophistication in cyber operations against our interests. Anybody else that you would put in that category of threats? I would also include Cuba as well. Uh, it's often a threat that's overlooked, but they're also a very capable intelligence service, uh, oftentimes supporting uh, the activities of Russia and China. And then has there has there been a shift, Mike, from targeting of the U.S. government to targeting of the private sector? Has that occurred? Yes. So if you look back 20 years ago, what we were most concerned about was intelligence services uh, targeting the U.S. government uh, for classified information or targeting DOD technologies. And what we've seen over the last 20 years is the shift to private sector intellectual property uh, research and development, uh, particularly by China, who's been the most egregious one in stealing uh, those technologies. And we've also seen their capabilities of China and Russia uh, move from not only these human operations, but to cyber operations and to technical collection that has made it uh, a difficult target to work. And then can you talk a little bit about, you know, the non-traditional intelligence operations? Because I think of when, when most people think of intelligence operations, they think of cloak and dagger and covert operations. Can you talk a little bit about the non-traditional piece, which seems to be growing in importance? Yes. Uh, so as I stated earlier, you know, we were originally concerned with intelligence officers who worked at embassies and embassy cover. And now we've seen a pivot to these non-traditional collectors, which are students, researchers, uh, business people, uh, people who have legitimate jobs who act as proxies uh, or surrogates for the intelligence service. They generally don't have formal training, uh, but they're able to operate uh, using their cover or using their legitimate uh, cover to then work for the intelligence service. I think the Benjamin Bishop uh, espionage case back in, I believe, 2011 is an example of, of a non-traditional collector. Uh, Mr. Bishop was a U.S. government contractor at Pacific Command in Hawaii at the time, and he had met a woman who was a researcher for the Chinese government, uh, and they developed a romantic relationship and then quickly after, she started to ask him very pointed and specific questions to elicit classified information from him. He was ultimately arrested. Uh, but you, if you look at her, she was a legitimate researcher, but working on the behalf of the government to collect information about our U.S. military. Is it your sense that these folks, these students, for example, and possibly business people, that they're actually tasked by Chinese intelligence, or are they you know, told when they leave, if you happen to run across anything of interest, you know, let us know. Do you have a sense of how that works? Yes. Uh, so they're certainly uh, operating uh, at the request of the Chinese government to do that. They are oftentimes tasked to do it. If you look at specifically at China, at their military civilian fusion, 
It is whatever the civilian sector is doing is doing not only for the civilian sector, but for the military sector. And whatever the military is doing is also for the civilian sector. And so China has this, if you will, this whole government approach uh, to how they do, do things. And so they will task uh, individuals, students and researchers to collect uh, a wide variety of information from research to national security information. Uh, and, and by and large, I think they believe they have no choice but to do it, to cooperate with the service. And some of them, I believe, don't want to do it. They just would like to do their work. And now China has a national security law, which now requires them to support the communist government. Do the Russians use the non-traditional approach as much as the, as the Chinese or or less so? We believe that I think all intelligence services are using them as, as well, but we predominantly see it uh, with the Chinese service. And it's a matter of, of, of numbers in China's case? It's a matter I mean, they just of have so many more people here. They have so many more people, uh, but also the, the targets that China are going at, they're so much more aggressive uh, in the intellectual property space than what we see uh, with Iran or Russia. Uh, they are certainly collecting in that space as well, but not to the, the degree that the Chinese are doing it. And so it certainly gives us a, a larger optic of how the Chinese are going about it, given that they're targeting so many different industries. Okay, so let's talk about those. So what what are the industries that the Russians and the Chinese are targeting? I think you you know mentioned in general them before, but if you could get a little bit more specific, that'd be helpful. Sure. So for Russia, they're mostly interested in the defense industry, um, transformative technologies, artificial intelligence. But we're mostly concerned with what China is doing. Uh, they certainly would like to challenge us to be the world leaders. Uh, the superpowers of the world, and they roll out a number of national plans that lay out their agenda. Uh, for instance, the Chinese 14th five-year plan or the Made in China 2025, in which they lay out these ambitious plans where they would like to have leadership in, in high-end uh, development and production of technologies. And this includes information technology, aerospace, uh, rail equipment, new materials, clean energy, maritime robotics, and then back to those transformative technologies that I mentioned before, artificial intelligence, quantum, biotechnology, uh, 5G. And when you look at the ambitious plans they have, the only way they can achieve that is through theft of our technology and also encouraging uh, people to come over uh, with those experiences, with those technologies. And so it's certainly these plans to us are a roadmap for theft of American innovation. It sounds as if this is a pretty sophisticated set of requirements, a pretty sophisticated effort on their part. Is that a correct conclusion here? Yes, I would say it's, it's a, a national plan that brings together their society from military to intelligence to the civilian sector, weaves it together to drive uh, these plans as a whole of society for the Chinese government. And it's being done uh, at our disadvantage. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Mike Orlando. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So, Mike, 
earlier you talked about traditional kind of human operations, right? Using human beings to collect intelligence, but then you also talked about cyber. Can you kind of put cyber in perspective here in terms of the degree to which it's used by both the Russians and Chinese and how successful they are at it? Yes. So both the Russians and Chinese are very successful and very capable at conducting cyber operations. Uh, look at the recent solar winds compromise, which was done by Russia. Uh, you look at China's hacking of our OPM Equifax databases. They're acquiring a large amount of our personal identify information. Uh, we're seeing the Chinese uh, hack into private sector companies to seal their trade secrets. Uh, for both countries, this is a low risk uh, operation against us. That's given them high dividends and a lot of information and has been very difficult for us to defend against. Okay. So what can companies, and we'll come, come back to universities in a second, but which is probably a particular problem, but what can companies do to protect themselves and what can the government do to help them? So this comes up a lot, uh, particularly recently with the recent uh, hacks. And by talking to the experts in the cyber field, uh, what we need government organizations and private sector organizations to do is to really implement some good cyber hygiene. It will not eliminate the threat, but it will help them manage the risk a lot better. And good cyber hygiene includes uh, maintaining your computer logs, looking for anomalies, the continuous monitoring of your systems to find those anomalies, uh, segregating your networks, and reducing down your administrative credentials, and patching your system. Like companies and government agencies that are able to do that are able to find compromises faster and minimize their losses. And why do we, this, this might be sort of an unfair question, but why do we seem to struggle at this? Is it because we're a little lax on the defense or is it because the offense, you know, has a first mover advantage in terms of, you know, advancing the technology of being able to conduct those cyber operations? Why do we seem to struggle at this so much? I, I think this is a great question. And I think part of it is that broadly, uh, people don't understand the threat or that they're in the, the targets of these services. I think for some who don't do understand the threat, uh, the cost to doing cybersecurity might be too much for smaller companies. Uh, I also think some have gone numb to it and just accept that it's just a, a reality of it. And then some of it is just, I think, the complacencies and not just implementing good cyber practices. And then talk a little bit about, because this is so, so important, the importance of the supply chain, right, from a cyber perspective. You can, you can lock yourself down, but if one of your vendors who has access to your system isn't locked down, you know, you're not either. Can you talk about that? Yes. So April is the National Supply Chain Integrity Month for us here at NCSE, where we try to bring greater awareness and best practices for supply chains. And what we see in supply chains, particularly on the cyber side, is the software supply chain attacks, where uh, they're able to compromise, let's say, a cloud server, uh, where they then are able to move around that server to acquire information on 50 companies, opposed to go after all 50 companies and so the services, the intelligence services have found this is an easier way to acquire information at a broader scale. So on the supply chain piece of it, and if you think about solar winds in particular, you know, an operation that 
was actually conducted in the United States, right, makes it a little bit difficult for the traditional intelligence community, right, CIA, NSA, to play a role in preventing that. Are you guys talking about better ways of approaching that, better ways of identifying it? How do we think about that going forward? So the, the, the good news is that that incident has created a lot of conversations in government and with private sector about how to go about this. And although there's no silver bullet solution to this, uh, it's certainly going to take uh, a whole nation public-private partnership to figure out how to go about this. Uh, I believe conversations about software bill of materials so we have better visibility into software so it's secure and the conversations around zero trust architecture is also very important. And just broadly from an intelligence community, it's trying to make sure we're focusing on those areas uh, in this realm where we can better support and share information with the private sector so they can then take better actions to defend themselves. So we chatted about what companies can do to protect themselves from intelligence operations that are cyber-based. What about intelligence operations that you know, are, are human-based, particularly the non-traditional, the non-traditional collector? How can companies protect themselves against those sort of operations? So what we tell companies is that they, they need an enterprise security approach from physical security to cybersecurity to also an insider threat program. And an insider threat program essentially looks at their employees to see what risk they may be holding with them, whether it's uh, theft or, or violence, but also to protect against these nation states. And then these programs will help identify those risks because we have seen the Chinese and Russians recruit people inside of companies to either facilitate cyber operations or steal information. Or in addition, the Chinese have a number of talent acquisition programs where they're trying to recruit talent, but also encouraging them to take technology with them or intellectual property when they recruit those individuals. So Mike, take us, take us inside one of these, one of these briefings for a company Right. Do you kind of generally describe what the Chinese are, what the Chinese intentions are, Russian intentions, and then give them specific examples of what you've seen over time? Is that what you do? Yes. So generally, we start out with the broad threat, uh, trying to make sure they understand the intentions of of Russia and China, particularly as it pertains to them in in their sector. Uh, We provide them some case examples of companies that may have lost technologies. Uh, We also try to give them examples of how they will go about it through legal and quasi-legal or illegal means, uh, whether that's cyber intrusions, insider threat, mergers. Uh, And then uh, we give them some tips on how to better protect themselves, such as building these insider threat programs, ensuring that they're integrated with their physical security, human resources and acquisitions and working as a whole team. And then we also, you know, make sure they understand that if the head of the company uh, doesn't believe in security, no one else will. It really has to be part of the culture of the company. And do you see kind of people kind of it's a it's a wake up call for people or is it your sense that they that they have a decent understanding of this or does it vary by industry or vary by company? What's what's sort of the reaction when you do one of these? So all the conversations we have are very, are very good and very informative and we have very good exchanges uh, but what I'm seeing broadly is that people still haven't understand the threat yet. And so it's hard for them to pivot to what to do about it. 
And I'm hoping over time through this, these outreaches, we're able to educate them enough where we can shift the conversation to you understand the threat. Now let's figure out how to work together to solve these complicated problems. And then talk a little bit about universities because that must that must be a little bit more difficult. Do you do briefings for them? How do those briefings go? Can you talk about that? Sure. So we do briefings uh, at universities. Uh, we have a team here who has a, a deep background in academics and how to talk with them, uh, understanding their concerns. Uh, this is a very challenging space because uh, in academia, the exchange of information is certainly needed uh, for innovation, and we certainly encourage it. But we also you know, have to educate them on the risks that uh, Russia, China, and others are certainly using that pathway to steal technology in a way that's not reciprocal to us. And we, we have to make sure that you know, academia understands the risk that's there uh, and also trying to have a balance of the transparency of what they're doing for the greater good. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Mike, do you get more pushback at universities than you do at companies? I think when I talk with companies, it's easier for them to understand the risk. Whereas when we talk with universities where they're accustomed to that international collaboration, it's sometimes harder for them to digest uh, the threat and sometimes harder for them to understand what to do about it and how to distinguish it. Mike, what about companies that have a significant presence in China? That must be much more complicated, right, in terms of protecting the company from, from counterintelligence threats. So how do you talk to companies about that? So we try to just make sure that they understand the environment there and what they're up against. You know, we certainly understand that American business needs to do business overseas and we don't try to dissuade them from it, but we want to make sure uh, that they have that knowledge so they can better protect themselves. And we try to make sure they understand that China has national security laws that require all Chinese companies and individuals to cooperate with the intelligence service and that there's really no separation from the state and the commercial and we also make sure that they understand that when you look at China's long-term ambitions, where in 2049, they want to be the leading economic superpower, they're also trying to do it at our disadvantage. And when their domestic uh, companies stand up, Chinese government will make sure that they aid them and make it harder for American companies to survive there. So we want to make sure that American companies understand that China doesn't see this as win-win. They see it as win-lose um, very uh, competitive environment for them there. So generally, once we do that, we, you know, we then answer their questions of what their concerns are and how we can better help them. Yeah. So maybe maybe we could take a, a broader step here. And you know, you've worked on a, a lot of important issues during your career. You worked counterterrorism. You know, you probably spent a lot of time working working Russia counterintelligence issues early in your career. China is the focus now. Not that we don't have to focus on places like Iran and, and Russia, but 
but China is the focus. Can you talk a little bit about China as a national security threat and why you're so worried about that and why an average American needs to be worried about it? We, we believe that there's no other country uh, than China that poses the most severe intelligence threat uh, to America. Uh, we're looking at $200 billion to $600 billion a year uh, in losses to intellectual property theft by, by China. And that's been going on for the last 20 years. That's a pretty staggering number of, of loss to us. And when you look at China's national plans, um, as I said earlier, it's it's not win-win. It's, it's to put us essentially out of business. And I think the concerns for this generation ahead is that uh, if we don't stay ahead of this, you know, we will be disadvantaged both economically and in the national security arena as well. Is it your sense that people get that across the country or they're starting to get it or there needs to be more discussion about this at a national level? So I think what I'm seeing is that there's a number of uh, articles out there now about the threat that I hadn't seen in the last 20 years. And so I think it is getting out there, but I really think there's a lot more work we need to do to educate people and, and keep this dialogue going because we can't forget about it. And we need to be talking about what do we do as a country to better protect ourselves because these problems uh, aren't just counterintelligence problems, they span into other areas as well. I was having a conversation with a current Biden administration official, and he had not been in government for almost 10 years. He left a little earlier than I did. And he told me, you know, based on what he's seeing, he's absolutely shocked at the degree of Chinese activities in the United States, right? He expected it to be significant, but it was even much, much more than he thought. And this was somebody who had been in the government and and had kind of seen, you know, what happened 10 years ago. So he saw a, a significant increase. And I'm just wondering if that's consistent with what you've seen. Yes. You know, I would say, you know, I first started this, uh, particularly with China, uh, they were very careful and quiet about what they were doing. And now, you see a very brazen activity from the Chinese government. And if you look at some of the activities that are going on here in the United States that frankly go against some of our first amendments and and other constitutional rights, uh, in in 2020, a Zoom executive, uh, which is a video platform, uh, was charged because uh, he fabricated evidence that Chinese nationals here in the United States uh, who were commemorating the Tiananmen Square uh, incident uh, were involved in terrorism or child pornography to to take down uh, their account at the behest of the Chinese government. Here, while they're in the United States, uh, there's also a recent article about WeChat and a number of individuals, Chinese nationals uh, here in the United States who are suing WeChat because they were writing articles critical of China and WeChat uh, censored and take, took down their articles. And then you look at Operation Fox Hunt, which FBI Director Ray often talks about, which is this uncoordinated uh, law enforcement activity that China formed in the United States uh, to try to repatriate uh, dissidents or political rivals uh, is very concerning to me and should be concerning uh, to American citizens that you had this authoritarian regime conducting activities uh, in the United States or trying to suppress our First Amendment rights. So essentially trying to do here what they do at home every day. Exactly. So, Mike, China is obviously a threat, but I guess the question is, how do we talk about it smartly, right? How do we 
warn about the threat without Americans seeing a Chinese spy behind every rock. Obviously, anti-Asian violence is a real thing. Um, the political rhetoric about China is no doubt you know, playing a role in that. So how do we get this balance right of talking about the threat without, you know, without creating incentives for people to kind of take action in their own hands? So first, you know, our issue is not with uh, Chinese Americans or Chinese nationals. Our issue is with the communist government of China. And in regards to hate crime, uh, that is something that is very important to the U.S. government to make sure that all people are treated uh, fairly. And, you know, we certainly are concerned about it. Uh, But I think the real narrative is, is the Chinese government is the Chinese government that are setting the conditions for people to steal information. They are encouraging them to do it, providing them benefit. And when you look at their national security laws, it is forcing them to do that. And I think that is the real conversation. And what, you know, what I would say to Chinese nationals or Chinese Americans is that we're here to help you. And if you find yourselves in a situation where you feel the Chinese government is trying to compromise you before you take action, please come to us so we can help you. We certainly need Chinese nationals and Chinese Americans to help us solve this problem. So, Mike, we're, um, we're almost out of time here. This might be the toughest question, which is, you know, if you were looking out five to 10 years is this problem going to be worse or is this problem going to be better? What do you think? If we don't take action, it is going to be worse. And I think the next five years are very critical for us to engage as a whole of society uh, to figure out how are we going to counter the efforts of China if we want to be the national leaders. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really great to have you on the show talking about what I think is an extraordinarily important issue. So thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm glad I've had the opportunity to share our thoughts so we can educate the public about the threats from from foreign governments. That was Mike Orlando. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows.